Hello and welcome to The Curator on Monaco Radio with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. In the next 60 minutes, I'll be bringing you some of the very best interviews and reports from the past week. This week, we celebrate the reopening of HMV in Oxford Street. The future still looks pretty good. HMV's back profitable again. So, you know, from my perspective, HMV's got a great future. Plus, Herd Wilders wins in the Netherlands. The front page headline of the National Broadcaster this morning described it as an earthquake in Dutch politics, and I think that's pretty much what it was. All that and much more in the next hour, here on The Curator, with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. We start the show talking about the seismic victory of far-right candidate Herd Wilders in the Netherlands. Here is colonist Ben Coates with more. The front page headline of the National Broadcaster this morning described it as an earthquake in Dutch politics, and I think that's pretty much what it was. Um, Keir Wilders has been around on the scene for a number of, well, a couple of decades now, and he's previously done quite well in elections, come third and fourth and things like that. And most of the polls expected him to do something similar this time, come in second or third behind a couple of the bigger parties, uh, maybe win something like 27 or 28 seats in Parliament, which in 150 seats up Parliament isn't too bad. Um, and he's absolutely smashed those expectations, um, ended up winning 37 seats rather than the 27 or so that was predicted, got 24% of the votes um, when no other party managed to get more than 15 or 16% um, and is now in a front runner to perhaps not become the next prime minister, but certainly be the driving force behind the formation of the next government. And what actually happens now? Could there be any coalition with him as prime minister? Well, it's all very complicated. There's um, something like 20 parties in Parliament, and so there's an almost infinite number of combinations of parties you could put together in different coalitions. The most likely two options at the moment would be that a couple of the big right-wing parties, the VVD of Mark Rutte and the NSA, would join together um, and find a coalition with Keir Wilders, probably not as Prime Minister, but maybe in a senior ministerial role there. Or, on the other hand, it could be a more left-wing coalition where the parties would come together to deliberately exclude Wilders, and then you would get the VVD plus uh, the Green Left Party, uh, D66, the NSC, a few of these um, smaller Green Left-wing parties join together and deliberately block Wilders out from government. At the moment, I have to say, I think the right-wing option is probably more likely, given the the sounds that other parties were making in the run-up to the election, saying that they would potentially be willing to collaborate with Wilders if he just made gave ground on some issues. And why do you think he's been able to do this now after decades in politics? Well, this has been quite an unusual election. It's really been a change election. Um, Mark Rutter stepping down as prime minister after 13 years in the job. And almost all of the major parties, apart from Kirill Wilders' party, have changed leaders. So in a strange way, this very radical figure who wants to upend everything represents a little bit of continuity. Um, someone who's been around the block a few times and is still hanging in there. Um, I think also the economic situation has obviously benefited right-wing populists in the Netherlands as it house elsewhere. And I think the other big parties made some quite serious missteps when it came to their electoral strategy. In particular, the VVD, Mark Rutte's party, chose to campaign very strongly on immigration issues um, where they thought they could outflunk um, builders and tempt back some voters. But it seems that actually by just focusing the campaign on immigration issues, they've just given more oxygen to the far right and made it easier for builders to cut through. And what's been the reaction amongst ordinary uh, Dutch people? Well, some people are very pleased, obviously. Around a quarter of the voters voted for Wilders, um, and something like 70% altogether voted for right-wing parties. So there's a lot of people who would be fairly happy to see quite a right-wing coalition come in. But I think under a lot of people, there's also a degree of shock. I mean, a lot of the things that 
Wilders had put in his manifesto, um, things like trying to leave the EU, uh, trying to stop aid to Ukraine, banning Muslim headscarves, forcibly closing mosques, banning people from owning copies of the Quran. These are all things that I think won't necessarily happen, given the way that Dutch politics depends on horse trading and giving things up. Um, but it's quite shocking to people that so many people have voted for that platform. And you mentioned it there, the EU. What are the implications? Because he's talking about Nexit, a uh, sort of uh, Netherlands Brexit type vote. Even if he doesn't get a referendum on that, he'll make life pretty difficult for Brussels, won't he? Yes, I think that's absolutely right. I think an actual Nexit is quite unlikely. Wilders has been pushing for one for years, but there's not a huge level of public appetite for that. Most Dutch people seem fairly happy being in the EU. And I think the British experience of leaving over the last few years has kind of been a salutary tale to many people um, and made them more inclined to stay. But I'm sure if Wilders does make it into government, then the government would be taking a tougher line. And even if he doesn't, some of the parties in the coalition, like the NSC, the um, VVD to a lesser extent, are also taking a fairly firm line on things like EU spending and rebates and so on. Um, And so I think, well, if I was a bureaucrat in Brussels, I wouldn't be very happy with this result either. Do you think this might hasten, uh, you know, there's been lots of talk about EU expansion recently, but there's also been talk about reforms needed. Do you think that Brussels might sit up, see Wilders coming in, see elections down the line where similar right parties could come in, the trouble they're having with Victor Orban, that they might decide to use this as an impetus to do some reforms that are needed? So I think it's probably necessary if you look at the way the wind is blowing and where public opinion sits. And there does seem to be a bit of a gap between what the EU institutionally wants to do in terms of ever closer union and what a lot of the public wants in terms of the exact opposite. Um, How that translates into real action, I'm not sure. I'm afraid I think um, Brexit is, again, maybe an interesting example where the EU in some hands did things quite well in negotiating the exit deal, but also prior to the Brexit vote didn't seem particularly responsive to the the idea that Britain might actually vote to leave and seems to sort of treat it all as a bit of a joke. So I hope the same situation doesn't happen again here. And finally, what kind of mark at the end of Mark Root's 13 years in power do you think this will leave on his legacy? Well, I think it's uh, it's not a good thing for his legacy to be leaving this behind. Um, his muted successor, Dylan Yezogos, um, the leader of the VVD now, um, he pushed her very hard and it seemed she was on track for quite a strong election victory and potentially becoming prime minister. Now that's all blown up in their faces. So that's obviously not a good look. I, I was talking to someone earlier about perhaps there's a parallel with um, Barack Obama, who sort of stepped down in a haze of happy glory and then was promptly replaced by Donald Trump, and that cast his whole legacy in a different light. Um, and I think there's all sorts of factors and reasons behind Wilder's success at this point, but it also has to be seen as a failure of some of the other parties to fight back effectively against him, including Rutter's. And just you touched on it there, we were expecting that the Netherlands would have its first female prime minister today. Why do you think she didn't manage to break through as expected? I think, again, it was partly the the focus on immigration. I think she chose to push the immigration issue very hard. She is herself the child of Turkish-Kurdish immigrants, so in a slightly unusual position to be campaigning against immigration. And I think that didn't really work. That manoeuvre backfired and she was kind of successfully outflanked by um, Wilders. If people are caring about immigration and worried about these issues, you go back to the original source, not to the sort of tribute act that follow.
And now, here is the Foreign Desk Explainer this week. Liberia's President George Way has been praised for his sportsmanship after peacefully conceding the country's election this week. Andrew Muller explains why this is remarkable and why the football legend might have lost his position in the first place. In his pre-politics career, President George Weah of Liberia won a lot more than he lost. He was a footballer for Monaco, Paris Saint-Germain, AC Milan, Chelsea, Manchester City and Marseille, among others. He represented his country 75 times. A necessarily partial, we don't have all day, list of Weyer's team and individual honours includes league titles in Liberia, France, Italy and England, major cups in France and England, African Footballer of the Year, African Player of the Century, FIFA World Player of the Year and the Ballon d'Or. Seriously, if you never saw George Weyer play, you should fix that today. Start with his ludicrous box-to-box solo goal for Milan against Verona in 1996. And enjoy the subsequent rabbit hole of YouTube highlights. You can thank us later. Ah, George Weyer said, power to the people. Yes, we must. In the most recent thing, Weyer contested, however, Liberia's presidential election, he lost. However, the manner in which he has chosen to lose, and this is probably where we should remember that his overstuffed trophy cabinet also includes the 1996 FIFA Fair Play Award, is arguably one of his greatest triumphs. Boxes filled with ballot papers being carried into Liberia's National Elections Commission. The election is the first to be held since the United Nations ended its peacekeeping mission in Liberia in 2018. The first round of Liberia's presidential election was held on October 10th. Weyer finished very narrowly top of the poll, but without an outright majority, which prompted a second round of voting on November 14th. Voters were asked to stick with President Weyer or take their chances with his opponent, former Vice President Joseph Bokai, who Weyer had handily defeated back in 2017 to become president in the first place. I call Ambassador George Mano Weyer to congratulate him as an emerging as a winner in the presidential contest. In the days after November 14th, the votes were duly counted and Joseph Bokai had more of them. Bokai Joseph N. UP votes obtained 814,212. We are George Mana CDC votes obtained 785,778. On being informed that he'd been beaten last Friday, fully three days before the results were due to be officially announced, President Weyer called Bokai to congratulate him and delivered to the nation a graceful and generous concession speech in which he addressed his rival as president-elect. The passing listener may at this point be thinking, even exclaiming, well, big deal, that's how this stuff is supposed to work. And the passing listener is not wrong. But 
And at this point, we will direct your attention with a sweeping forearm to the grand scheme of things. It is very much not always how this stuff does work. West Africa in this decade has seen at least as many actual or attempted coups d'etat as peaceful and orderly transfers of power. Defeated candidates in a couple of much more established democracies, Brazil, the United States, have attempted to cling to power and have encouraged violence while so doing. The convention of losers' consent, vital to democracy, has been repeatedly and dangerously challenged. And here is the thing. If Weyer had wanted to push the presidential desk up against the office doors, incite his followers to riot, and issue foam-flecked tirades claiming a ghastly deep state conspiracy was thwarting the people's will, he kind of had the material. The runoff was desperately close. Bokai beat Weyer by just 20,000-odd votes out of 1.6 million cast. Though EU observers described Liberia's election as generally efficiently organised, it wouldn't have required too much imagination to stir these meddling foreign panjandrums into some sinister globalist plot. At the very least, Weyer could have demanded recounts or tried to take it to court. But having possibly learned as a younger man that there is little mileage or dignity in arguing with the referee after the whistle has been blown, he has not. Come January, Weyer will turn up at the inauguration of his successor in Monrovia and offer a hearty handshake. I'm so happy that the president accepted his defeat. Because if we don't accept it, we will go back to war. And we don't want to go back there. It says much about the presently rickety status of West African democracy that the gratitude and relief expressed elsewhere in the region has verged on the Baroque. Omar Aliotoure, president of the ECOWAS Commission, exulted as follows in Weyer's direction. Your gracious acceptance of the results of the elections is indicative of your statesmanship and commitment to the consolidation of peace and security in Liberia. Toure is a career diplomat from the Gambia, which has endured two attempted coups in the last decade alone. Weyer's concession demonstrates not merely a respect for democracy, but humility before the stakes in play. It is only a couple of decades since the end of hideous civil conflicts within Liberia that killed perhaps 250,000 people. The Liberian president largely responsible for these horrors, Charles Taylor, is presently serving 50 years in an English prison, following his conviction in 2012 by the special court for Sierra Leone, another country also severely affected by Taylor's rampages. Somewhat curiously, Taylor's ex-wife, Jewel Taylor, has served as George Weyer's vice president. Which is partially to acknowledge that those Liberians who declined to re-elect President Weyer had their reasons. Liberia's economy continues to sputter, though Weyer could reasonably argue that the COVID-19 pandemic did not help, beyond inspiring the foundation of the modern pop genre songs about respiratory infections by sitting heads of state. Coronavirus spread droplets. When the president coughed or sneezed, And he has fallen short of his promises to flush out corruption, to the extent that his own chief of staff and two other senior officials were sanctioned by the United States for fiddling the public finances. He seemed unable to make up his mind whether a tribunal to dispense justice over Liberia's civil wars was a good idea or not. 
He has not been a complete exception to the rarely fallible rule that electing celebrities to high office rarely ends well. But Weyer's acceptance of defeat should be considered an important component of such political legacy as he bequeaths. In his region and in our time, it's a fine example to have set. God bless Africa and the rest of the world. Weyer's projects. For Monocle Radio, I'm Andrew Muller. You are listening to The Curator, and this week I've been very happy as the iconic flagship store of HMV reopened on London's Oxford Street. I had the pleasure to speak with Doug Putman, the owner of HMV. Nineteen twenty-one was when this uh, all started, but to be able to get open again on Oxford Street, but specifically in this exact building, is unbelievable. I mean, the first time I ever visited the UK was in 2015 for my mum's uh, 60th birthday, and I walked through this specific store. Obviously, didn't own it, and I remember saying to my family, "Like, man, I can't believe it. whoever owns this, how lucky they are! Like, what a great spot." Uh, and so now fast forward, you know, eight years later to be able to, to sit here and be able to be, you know, a big part of it is like, it's so awesome. It's fantastic. Tell us, uh, because of course the record store and what is a record store have changed throughout the years. And for a period, even the music industry was quite pessimistic. Everybody was online. I mean, but there is a future for the record store. I mean, I think, I think you're the man actually that can actually answer that. Yeah, I mean, I obviously think there's a great future in this. I mean, if you think about it, it, it all started when, you know, you could download and that was going to be the end of it. And then in came Apple and, and then you could, you know, buy a song and that was going to be the end of it. And now it's streaming and that's going to be the end of it. But the reality is it's really hard to get rid of a format. I mean, when I first bought Sunrise back and I think it was 20... 13 the buyer there said to me cds are dead no you know it's just it's just inevitable it's over and if you look at it we actually had growth in cd this year for hmv so i think the idea that this is going away is is not going to happen we've got customers that are coming in you know the assortment changes where you focus changes obviously if you walk through the store you can see there's more pop culture there's more band merchandise there's a lot more vinyl there's record players you know that's all stuff that's changed if we go back to 10 years ago, that really wasn't there. So I think the future still looks pretty good. HMV's back profitable again, which is fantastic. So, you know, from my perspective, HMV's got a great future. There used to be some concerts here uh, at this precise address. Do you have any plans with that in mind? Yeah, we've taken one floor of the building and it's just a venue. It's got a stage with some great acoustics. So I think, you know, we we totally think we're going to get some great acts and bands to come and play. And I think that'll be a, a big part of what we do is getting signings and, you know, I think having some lesser known artists be able to come here and play. So it's really about making it uh, an overall great experience. And let's talk about music formats again. I, I was so happy when, when you mentioned that CD sales are on the rise because I love vinyls, but I actually love CDs and I still buy it. But you see even artists like Taylor Swift. Uh, I mean, artists are releasing different types of CDs. Is that also part of what you're going to sell here at HMV? 100%. Our goal is that we have anything that helps the fan get even closer with 
with their artist. And so we have a lot of customers who will come in and they want the vinyl, they want the CD. And some, you know, you've got a lot of bands that are releasing a cassette tape now. So, you know, I think for us, it's important to offer all the formats and and to have them available and, and let the customer decide. But HMV is not moving away from CD. It's not moving away from DVD. We're still very much about those things and supporting them. So, again, I think there's, I mean, who would think that you'd be selling cassette tapes? So, I think it just shows you there is more resilience out there in some of these formats than I think a lot of people realize. And not only with HMV, but even with other brands, you've always been a man that believes in the physical space. Look, it's a really interesting thing because, you know, pre-COVID it was, okay, well, online's going to take over. And then COVID happened and it was, that's the end of physical retail. And obviously during the COVID lockdowns, you saw, you know, online grow and, and the physical store decline. But coming out of that, you've seen that online is shrinking and that, you know, the growth is coming back to uh, actual shopping. I think in a world where you can order everything on your phone and everything is becoming somewhat easier, whether it's your groceries, you know, what are we going to do? Just sit at home all day? I think the experience of coming out and being in stores is is great, but it's on the retailer to have a great experience. The stores need to be clean. They need to look good. You need to have experienced staff. Those are all really hard things to do, especially in a chain of 100 stores to keep those standards up. But I think as long as you have the experience, that brick and mortar store is, is going to be here. And so from my perspective, I continue to invest in the high street. I continue to invest in stores. Um, and if you look at everything that I own, whether it's Toys R Us or Sunrise Records, you know these are all very strong brick and mortar uh, businesses. So I will continue to focus there. And tell us, I mean, it's opening, it's Christmas season. It's a great time to great open, time. I have to say. Uh, what else can you tell us about the plans for next year? You mentioned that you have a floor that might be used for events, for yep. gigs. That's super exciting. Yeah, I mean, I think we're hoping to, to get a couple AAA artists in here to put on some nice intimate events. And an artist can sell out a, a stadium of you know, 20, 30,000 people, and that's great. But there's something different about playing to a couple hundred people. And I think we can offer that right downtown in, in, in London. We'll have a, a focus on that. And then, you know, for HMV in the future, look, we'll look at more opportunities in London and elsewhere. And when it makes sense, we'll continue to open more stores. I mean, every year, the HMV store count since I've owned it has grown. And so I think we're hopeful that in 2024, we'll see that store count grow again. We've obviously just opened in Ireland. And then we got our Belgium, our first European store open today, actually, is its first day open. Yeah, so exciting. And the big interview is back. And as part of the new season, we had best-selling author Malcolm Gladwell sitting down with Georgina Godwin to discuss his life, career, and gripping podcast series, Revisionist History. Many of the stories I do podcasts about, you really couldn't do in print. They, they, don't, they wouldn't work. They're the kind of the effect that the narrative effect you're trying for is something that really requires audio. And... Or they might work in print, but not as well. Do you know what I mean? I really do think they're, the more I get into it, the more I'm convinced they're profoundly different genres. Mm. And I mean, you can manipulate, that sounds a horrible word, but you can manipulate people's emotions so much more effectively with audio, with the use of pause or sound or so on. Oh, you could make, you know how hard it is to make someone cry on the page? I mean, Dickens could do it, but it's really difficult. Making someone cry in a podcast? I mean, we do it all the time. We, 
you know, we we have like four or five genuine crying moments a season. I very much doubt that I have, in all of my writing, made any more than a handful of people cry. I mean, that little fact alone speaks volumes as to the difference in these two um, forms. Mm. Tell us about the company, Pushkin Industries. I started it with my old friend, Jacob Weisberg, one of my very best friends. And we just wanted to do quality audio. So we thought there was a there was room for, you know, we weren't going to do lots of true crime shows and all that kind of thing. And also we didn't want to be a kind of think of ourselves as purely a podcasting company or purely an audiobook company. We were agnostic as to what form whatever we were working on ended up in. The common element was we wanted to do audio. We just thought that like working in sound was something that would be really fun to kind of explore as a, um, there hadn't been a kind of pure high-end sound company before. That was Pushkin. Mm. Uh, Before we get on to your latest series, The Fabulous Revisionist Histories, I'd like to look back a little on your own history. You were born in 1963 and you recently turned 60. Happy birthday. It was just a couple of weeks ago. Um, Is there any kind of revisionist aspect to how you view your upbringing now? How do you think being the child of of a psychotherapist and a maths professor influenced your childhood? Oh, my. I mean, how long, how much time do you have? Uh, I mean, it obviously influenced it a great deal. I am the child of two analysts, two very different kinds of analysts, right? They are, both mathematics and psychoanalysis are analytic philosophies applied to certain kinds of problems. And so I got a little bit of both. I suppose that's one thing. And my parents were immigrants, my mom, you know, is Jamaican. It was an immigrant first to England and then to Canada. And my dad was an immigrant from England to Canada. In retrospect, that fact is probably the most important of my upbringing. I think there's just a tremendous, for someone who's going to kind of spend their life looking at a society and commenting on it, it's very useful to be an outsider. Mm. And that move from Britain to Canada when you were six, do you think that had a, a big impact on you, perhaps a bigger impact now when you look back? I think it does. I mean, I wonder whether it would have made a big difference had we moved when I was 15 or 12, you know, where I had spent a significant part of my educational upbringing in England, and I could have had, you know, a little bit of both. Um, and had stronger memories. You know, my memories of growing up in England are, you know, I have them, but they're not central to my recollections of my childhood the way my Canada memories are. Mm. What about religion? It was a religious household in a very religious part of Canada. Did that Mm. have a a big effect on your thinking now? Well, sure. If you listen, revisionist history actually is mostly, you know, of all of the things I've done over the years, you see religious themes most often. I mean, I both sort of explicitly, I did a series on the Jesuits and the, the way they look at problems. And one of my most memorable episodes was one of the early seasons. We just went on a Mennonite pastor who had to make this choice between marrying his gay son and staying a pastor in his church. Um, I just, I find the subject of faith to be, and its obligations, its attendant obligations to be, both interesting, kind of intellectually, but also important. I think that those kinds of, those are very core questions that are essential to the way we kind of see ourselves. And I think people who didn't grow up in a religious 
community are very often shy about talking about religion and its effects and power. They don't like to admit they take it seriously. I don't have any problem admitting that I take religion seriously. You started work at, at the Washington Post back in 1987. You went on to hone your style at the New Yorker. Do you think your younger self would have predicted where you are now? Well, every prediction my younger self made about my older self is proven wrong. So, <laughs> in fact, every prediction I think I've ever made in my life has been proven wrong. I don't make predictions. I don't really think about the future much. I'm convinced that it's foolish because, in fact, I, you know, even at Pushkin, I'm constantly objecting to budget forecasts, which I realize is, is absurd because companies have to do budget forecasts. But my point is, they're always wrong. So why do we do them? Like, you know, it's like it's a pointless exercise. Why do we persist in trying to persist to predict a future that can't be predicted? So, no, I don't believe in that kind of stuff. So you have a child now, and I listened to a very interesting podcast you were doing where you were talking about, you know, parents doing all of this research about what school their kid should go to and, and so on. And you were saying it really doesn't matter. Has being a father changed you at all? I now have two children. Has it changed me? Well, I go out less, so <laughs> um, it's changed me only in the sense that I'm. It's brought a great deal of happiness, unexpected happiness, into my life. So, in that sense, yes. Um, has it changed my positions on parenting and child raising? I mean, I now have data, personal data that I didn't have before. Do I think that schools don't matter? Well, you know, it's never that it's not that I thought that schools don't matter. Schools do matter. It's that I didn't think that parents were in a position to accurately predict what school would be best for their child. In other words, the thing about a school that makes it valuable to you is not something that either you or anyone else has access to at the point at which you're making the decision about what school to attend. It's random stuff. You know, what made my schooling really important was a couple of friends I made along the way who just happened to fit kind of perfectly into what I was, what I needed or, or didn't know I needed. Or, um, and relationships, chance sort of intellectual relationships with teachers who I didn't know, you know, when we moved to the community and the decision was made to move me, to take me to a certain school or what have you, or who I chose the University of Toronto and there were some professors that I found very inspiring. I had no idea who they were before I went to Toronto. So I, I can't say that I chose Toronto because of the quality of the teaching. I didn't know how good the college, you know. I suspect that there are a hundred colleges in North America that I could have chosen where I would have found teachers with whom I would have had an interesting experience. And another hundred where I could have made friends who had a lasting impact on my life. I, but, I, you know, in no case could I have predicted who those people would be or where they were. It's another instance of this kind of the folly of prediction. Mm. Why do we believe we can predict these things? UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. And we're back with The Curator, our weekly highlight show here on Monaco Radio.
And now, the Council on Tall Buildings and Urban Habitat held their annual conference in Singapore this year with the theme of humanizing high density. Jessica Bridger went along to this year's conference and she sent us this report. Density is a hot topic in urbanism. The UN projects that by 2050, 70% of people will be living in cities. That's a lot of city. Here's a couple more statistics. 80% of what we have built already will still be here in 2050. Okay, fine. But we do need to build 60% more city by 2050, which is actually astounding. As the world urbanizes, the question of where to go is often answered with a simple up. Building vertically increases urban density and, in theory at least, reduces sprawl. You would be forgiven for thinking this is reductive and simple, but it is a solution. However, tall buildings all too often create inhuman urban areas, unpleasant, anonymous-feeling bits of megacity. It is this exact problem that the Council for Tall Buildings and Urban Habitat, known as CTBUH, addressed at its October 2023 conference in Singapore, titled Humanizing High Density. Founded in 1969, the CTBUH is the leading institution for cutting-edge engineering, architecture, vertical transport, and planning for tall buildings. This year's conference marks a growing concern for how we can do density right one story at a time. First, we need to understand what's below the skyline with the help of Alex Lawler, a principal at Sydney-based Architectus, creators of some truly tall, truly great tall buildings. She was one of the panelists. When we experience cities, we experience them both as skyline, you know, what we see in the postcard, the pretty kind of sunset. And then as we walk through cities, we're experiencing them as the ground line. And what we're talking about is that as designers, we actually need to be very conscious of both how a building sits with its neighbours and sits within the context of the city, as well as how we work not only architecturally in the ground plane, but also in that community shaping element. But where does density fit in exactly? In 2022, CTBUH appointed a new CEO, the architect Javier Quintana de Uña. He was eager to explain. Density doesn't come always in tower shape. More and more cities are evolving from a lower density to a mid-density or even higher density, like is the case mostly in the Asian realm. Vertical urbanism refers to all those practices, strategies to manage the city, to think about the city with different numbers than the traditional ones. Vertical urbanism, the urban qualities of tall buildings, maybe even the urban culture of tall buildings, is the concern of the CTBUH. Traditionally, tall buildings have been icons. They've been a space for innovation. They've been objects of representation. So in itself, they're culture, and that gives them a sense of importance and meaning, etc. Yes, tall buildings are tall and very impressive, especially the best of the best, as seen at CTBUH events, and especially at the CTBUH awards, considered the Oscars of tall buildings. They are like the magnet of innovation. I like to compare CTBUH with Formula One, it's a bit like a club of people where 
the best teams, with the best engineers, with the best designers, the most ambitious developers, they come up with ideas that for many years they've been about getting higher or taller and taller. But slowly things are shifting a bit. The usual metrics are perhaps not enough in an era where we need to build up, a lot of up, but do well at unprecedented quantities. The idea behind a tall building is being tall, no? for obvious reasons. Height is the way to measure if you're tall or not, or if you belong to this club or not. No, But things are changing, and I think we can say that we're in a moment of shifting values from the more mathematical, quantitative ones, how tall you are to how sustainable you are, or how much density, how much people can you put there, to how many people should we put there so their experience is positive. So there's this from quantitative to qualitative that the industry is responding no, at this point. And it's a slow process, but also nonstop. And our topics need to evolve with that. And the human component of density that is intrinsic to the whole definition of density and tall buildings had not been protagonists in this way. So that's why we thought that people should be the center of this conference here in Singapore and then in Kuala Lumpur. Density is increasing, and we need expert bodies, associations, working groups to do it properly, to build better the first time around. We're becoming more and more relevant because cities are getting denser and denser. The future is dense. I don't know how dense or depending where we are, it will be more or less. And the shapes of densities or the solutions for density will be different in one place to another. But it's clear that there's an increase. So it's very easy to forecast that the management of density and tall buildings is going to be more and more relevant. The conference this year is only one step. And in the coming years, CTBUH will surely make more. I see tall buildings becoming more, not the Formula One, but more mainstream. And if you ask me, how do I see the organization moving forward, is to coming out of that club asking other professionals to be part of this conversation, inviting them not only to our conferences, but to help us to resolve the problem that is coming. We are moving from a more professional environment to a more people's environment. And of course, we want to become more relevant. We want to interact with higher agencies, the people that are behind policy, because at the end, we are experts in density, and density is one of the components, if not the most relevant, in urban space and the conceptions of cities in the next decades. And for food neighborhoods this week, we head to Paris, Rue des Martyrs, a street in the vibrant 9th arrondissement, which is brimming of dedicated food retailers that have been honing their craft for decades. Monaco's Claudia Jacob takes us through the addresses preserving France's traditional cuisine, as well as those against the grain. Parisian cuisine really needs no introduction. You'll never eat badly in this lively metropolis, which boasts no fewer than 132 Michelin-starred restaurants, 
and which has become the gatekeeper of the country's haute cuisine establishments. In the French capital, mealtimes are complete only after three courses. Wine isn't restricted to the evening, and tables are considered bare without a basket of baguette. As our mealtimes are increasingly curtailed to accommodate professional commitments, in Paris, no such logic has taken hold. Instead, mealtimes offer an opportunity for a pause and for indulgent flavors to be celebrated and savored. But where to start in a city overwhelmed with fine dining addresses? The Ninth Arrondissement is perhaps not the most obvious area, but take a closer look at this charming neighborhood on the right bank, and you'll find one of the city's largest concentrations of restaurants, cafes, boulangerie, and fromagerie. This former working-class area is known as Opéra, thanks to the opulent Palais Garnier Opera House, which signals the beginning of Le Neuvième. The boundaries of this energetic arrondissement continue north through the once seedy area of Pigalle until you reach the foot of Montmartre. Although the area has attracted bourgeois families who find its authentic charm a refreshing break from Paris's overcrowded centre, it has nonetheless resisted overwhelming gentrification. But the street to which this arrondissement can largely attribute its foodie reputation is the Rue des Martyrs. Across half a mile, you'll find more than 200 boulangeries, grocers, and bistros. Pedestrianized on the weekends to create a bustling food market atmosphere, it's home to a community of dedicated artisans who see gastronomy not as a profession but as a passion. From the fromagerie serving fragrant rounds of fromage de chèvre since 1999, to the traiteur who roasts rotisserie chicken from 8 o'clock in the morning, and the elegant jam emporium at number 9, the Rue des Martyrs encapsulates the village-like spirit of pre-Osman Paris, before the city became modernised post-revolution. It's time for le petit déjeuner, and no morning in the ninth is complete without indulgent viennoiserie from artisanal bakery Le Pain Retrouvé. In a country revered for its exceptional pâtisserie know-how, this boulangerie, which opened in 2021, was the humble recipient of the Gour et Maillot Award in 2023, which recognises the bakery's long fermentation process, its soft yeast and its organic flours. Observe bakers deftly knotting pistachio babka, kneading sour rye bread enriched with whole dried apricots, and preparing pear and chocolate tarts, tucked snugly into wooden cake rounds to preserve their freshness. Bakeries in Paris are generally takeaway only, so armed with your breakfast, head north to KB Coffee Roasters. Coffee in Paris tends only to take the form of an espresso, but KB's approach is far more international. Unlike much of Paris's cafe scene, which resists laptop culture in favour of spontaneous people watching, KB is more than happy for customers to while away a few hours on their street terrace. Lunchtime rolls around and the sandwiches from Mamiche are calling. This neighbourhood bakery in South Pigalle, between the 9th and 10th, serves up classic Niçoise fillings in fluffy brioche buns, club sandwiches in thick chunks of spalt loaf and crusty ficelle sticks enriched with salty conté and black olives. Save space for one of their infamous beignets, donuts, which change flavour each weekend, featuring imaginative fillings of creme brulee, praline and stracciatella. Feeling full? Take a post-prandial walk to the bucolic Musée de la Vie Romantique, one of a trio of literary museums in a capital contemplated by so many writers. Sit down in the tranquil conservatory of the museum's tea room, run by Rose Bakery. 
Incongruent with its metropolitan surroundings, the museum's gardens will transport you to the idyllic French countryside. The sun is setting and Apéro are in full swing. Pony is a contemporary bistro on the Basin Rue Saint-Lazare. Vintage liqueur bottles line dimly lit shelves, creating shades of Art Deco influences, which effuse a sense of casual elegance. My tipple of choice is the Martyr cocktail, which pays homage to the bastion of the night's culinary epicenter. Comprising blueberry cream, cassis liqueur, lemon juice and a shot of vodka to cut through the sweetness, it'll set you up for the night ahead. If you're on the hunt for a rooftop bar, your best bet is the also-owned Hotel Rochoir, which yields magical panoramic views of the Sacre-Cœur Basilica, with the consistent buzz of the city below. It's dinner time, and it's time to indulge in a plate of steak frites at Le Bon Georges, a luxurious Parisian bistro which sits just off the quaint Place Saint-Georges. Here you'll find classic French dishes served with flair, including terrine de campagne, riz de veau and parmentier de canard. Accompanied by a traditional wine list, this is a generous affair in an intimate setting. A menu lovingly handwritten in chalk is a symbol of affection for a culinary craft which cannot be rushed. So tuck in. Paris may be the city of love, but if there's one thing Parisians on the Rue des Martyrs cherish most of all, it's a well-thought-out feast. Bon appétit! We're back with the curator and our highlight from my show, The Stack. I had the pleasure to speak with Joe Allison. She's the editor-in-chief of HTSI, the luxury publication of the Financial Times. At the FT, I joined, I think, in July 2014. So I'd been working at British Vogue previously to that. And then I took on the role of fashion editor when Vanessa Friedman went to the New York Times. So I took her place and did that for nearly five years, I think, because the HTSI job came up um, in 2019 and I started there in September 2019. And I think you saw potential as well in the magazine, right? Because it's interesting when, you know, a lot of things are moving digital, yeah. but I see the, the schedule. I mean, now there's a magazine literally every week, let's be honest. I think we do 38 issues a year now. So we've upped the number from something like, I think it was around 30. So I think we've added another eight. But previous to my getting there, there'd been a slightly anomalous schedule where we did some publication on Friday. So we had 12 issues that would come out on a Friday and then a certain number that came out on a Saturday. So we wanted to streamline that and just put everything out on the same weekend so that people knew that when they bought the weekend paper, if HTSI was available, then it would be there. So that was like a kind of early thing that we try I wanted to do as soon as possible because I'd never heard of a magazine which came out on different days of the week it just was too complicated and then I suppose from a magazine point of view I guess I'd worked on a you know a glossy monthly publication at British Vogue for seven years and so I had a real love and experience of like putting together a magazine and I still really kind of relish that opportunity, even though there are fewer and fewer magazines to do that with. And HSI was always this kind of like tantalizing possibility in the room that was like, if you could only kind of get your hands on that, the things you could do. So, you know, it was always like, it was always such a kind of golden sort of like opportunity. Besides the changing name about a year ago or so, I mean, what else? Because you did bring some new kind of features to the magazine. Of course, it's the magazine that we all know and loved for many years. But there, it feels 
fresher, if I may say. Oh, that's very kind of you. I think when I came, the magazine had been conceived in the late 90s. And it was very much, I think, in response to a moment then where there was a big city bonuses. And I think the magazine had been kind of conceived as this sort of very city focus, like where to spend your bonus focus. And I suppose over the years, I mean, it had been 25 years, I think, when I got there, or we celebrated that anniversary really soon after. I think what I was thinking of is what is the kind of consumer landscape now? What does luxury mean to people? And I think it was about maybe slightly loosening up some of the definitions that had come to define the magazine as it was. And I think I wanted to really bring out more of the lifestyle content and look at a kind of broader spectrum maybe of things that might fall under the kind of language of luxury. So there was a real opportunity to talk about like health and wellness, which I don't think had been massively covered beforehand. There was a lot more focus on interiors and houses, like how people live, what their house style is, rather than design focused stories that were merely talking about selling furniture. I think it was a bit more about offering curations and sort of a different lifestyle so that people could look at it from a slightly more inspirational point of view than a go out and buy this point of view. Definitely. And talking about buying, actually, I did enjoy the gift oh, yeah. issue, which I think <laughs> for less, it's, favorite. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. It, it was amazing. So it was still definitely like a guide of things to buy. But, it, you know, it just felt kind of natural and lovely. And I mean, I think the essence of how to spend it in its original ethos and mandate and what we all still think today is like it, it's about celebrating and champion, championing things that we love and things that we think you should like know about. And obviously, we are a consumer title. So a lot of those things are available to buy. So, you know, we haven't kind of lost sense of like the fact that we're not we're a consumer title. It's just that I think maybe where things might have been much more kind of prescriptive in terms of what to buy. Now we suggest something or we show a lifestyle that might go and inspire you to do something that is but very much in the same spirit as I think we brought to British Vogue as well. I, I always worked under that. Like it's a mood board. It's not necessarily a kind of shopping list. What do you think HDSI and, and perhaps FT Weekend in general means for the FT brand? Because I think it's becoming more and more valuable, at least in my opinion, because <laughs> I also feel as, as well the FT as a brand is super international as well. I mm -hmm. think perhaps it's the most international of the British papers as well. But what do you think about that, that, that this kind of weekend? Like where do we sit yeah. in the paper? I mean, we're a kind of beautiful island, I think, for the mm. FT. I mean, the FT has this incredibly specific core readership during the week and a reader that is looking for a very specific kind of news coverage, which I suppose is in itself quite a, not a niche interest, but certainly a kind of self-selecting group of people who work professionally and need to know about our markets and companies and things like that. But I think in the last sort of 50 years, that's changed enormously in terms of what the FT offering is. And I think the weekend is this kind of natural extension of offering a kind of much broader range of features about what's going on in the world and what you should know about and hopefully presented in the same authoritarian, but also, or, or rather authorit authoritative, <laughs> yes. but also curated manner so that whoever picks it up kind of has a digest of all the things that they need to know. And The weekend really adds all the other sections that perhaps aren't so kind of like well covered by news. And I think, you know, weekend is maybe a slightly misleading title because obviously a lot of our content now is mixed in with the weekly stuff. But we are the things that sort of sit a little bit adjacent to the kind of absolute sort of specific news agenda. 
And finally, here on The Curator, Sir Anthony Gormley is one of the world's best-known and most popular artists, with his famous life-size casts, usually of himself, seen all over the world. Sir Anthony is perhaps best known for huge sculptures, such as the Angel of the North here in the UK, with wings wider than a Boeing 757, spreading out in Welcome to the Millions Driving By. His latest project, called Body Politic, has just opened in London. Once again, Sir Anthony is exploring the relationship between our bodies and the world we inhabit. Monaco's Emma Nelson went to meet him at White Cube Gallery. We're going into a resting place. Here is our threshold of 1 meter 05 to 2 meters 70. And now we are in a space that is uh, yeah, about 37 meters long and about 27 meters wide. And it has 244 bodies in it. But these bodies are made out of, well, big blocks of um, fired clay. It's hard to miss Anthony Gormley. His six-foot-four frame stands him out from the crowd, and models of that frame have been cast and placed all over the world. You can see his sculptures atop mountains, by an Australian lake, on a Dutch seashore. And in the north of England, more than 30 million people drive past the Angel of the North every single year. Some claim it's the most viewed piece of art in the world. The sculptors are quite literally out there. But today, he's leading me through Resting Place, one of the artworks in his latest exhibition, Body Politic, and I'm struggling to keep up. When you mean bodies, you mean representation of human bodies in clay form, or bodies as in well, actually, a, a, an entity or something? They're actually buildings, and uh, if you come down, if we go a little bit low... We're on we, our knees now. <laughs> we, we are looking out at a, at a cityscape with towers and uh, and archways and ways through and yeah for me it's really important that the minute you come through the threshold if you're in a large group of people you have to split up because this is like a great maze or a labyrinth and you have to find your own way through it and as you do you're invited to look down on these bodies as if you were in a helicopter looking down on a on a building you know some look like very August, very symmetrical municipal buildings. Some are much more complicated and maybe even you can't see the body at first and then you realise that actually it's like a fetal figure that is crunched up into itself. Anyway, as you go through, I think the invitation is to say, oh, I know what that feels like. That's, that's a bit like being on the beach on a summer's day, looking up into a deep blue sky. Or, oh, I know what that feels like you're really cold and wet and trying to like not shiver which one are you right now <laughs> i don't know i'm a mixture of all of them probably is there one that's i'm the trepidate i'm the one with trepidation trying not to trip over it and break it <laughs> well no that, that, that is important to say that each of these blocks is free so that they, these are loose assemblies um they may be in 244 particular forms but they can be deconstructed so the so here's a brick yeah, you can see they're drying as we speak. It smells very particular as you come in. There's the, 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 the sound of the clay. There are five rooms containing five works in Anthony Gormley's body politic. In each, Gormley examines the relationship between us as people, bodies, and the modern world. From living digitally, struggling with climate change, even the way countries treat their refugees. Anthony leads me through it at pace. Where are we going now? We can do one more. This is called Bind, 
and this is absolutely dependent on the room that it finds itself in. It's attached to the ceiling and to the walls and to the floor and it's basically the mapping of the internal condition of a body then literally connected to the determining condition of the room that it's in. Where do we dwell? The first place that we dwell is a biological body. The second place that we dwell is the built environment. Away from the display, however, there is a deep thoughtfulness to Gormley's approach. I think, for me, this is an exhibition that is an audit of us now, our fears and our hopes, and maybe our necessary responsibilities, both to ourselves as individuals and to the world at large. That means both the planet and uh, other living creatures. We are now urban animals and we have made a world that determines our choices and our freedoms and our, and indeed our, our movement. I think that we're in a very particular time. Everybody is aware of the growing climate catastrophe and has no idea how to respond or resolve or behave responsibly in face of it. We're in the middle of two particularly vicious and ghastly wars. We are aware of massive and ever-increasing divisions between the rich and the poor. So I've tried to acknowledge the fact that yeah, this year the statistics tell us that 110 million people are on the move. They're migrants having been uprooted from their place of belonging by either climate catastrophe, war, or sheer inability to live because of poverty. And I think we've got to recognize that there is a fundamental dichotomy, if not conflict, in these two human needs. One, the need for security, protection, refuge, and the other, our need to roam. And I think that we haven't resolved this dichotomy. We allow money, goods, to travel freely across borders, but not bodies. In many cases, this is an absolute injustice. How do you feel about being seen as a more political artist? I think every choice that we make as individuals is political. Even the choices that we make to ignore politics. I don't think that is a serious choice. We have to take our representatives to account. I'm confident that the work is good but it now has to do its work. There's nothing like it. It's just really, really exciting. It's like, oh my goodness, what is going to happen next in terms of this relationship between viewer and object, thinking and feeling? I mean, it's a huge privilege, but it's hugely exciting. And that's all we've got time for this week's edition of The Curator. The show was produced by David Stevens and presented by me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Join us again next week and thank you for listening.